Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. In our discussion this evening of the biography of the Prophet we will examine his marriage to Sauda. Previously, we've examined the Prophet's marriage to Zainab bint Jahsh and the circumstances surrounding that marriage. One of the marriages of the Prophet was the marriage that he had with Sauda bint Zum'ah. It's not clear from historical accounts when exactly the Prophet married her, but she was the first woman the Prophet married after the death of Lady Khadija So a lot of sources indicate that he married her in Mecca. And basically this is how it happened. She was married to her cousin. His name was As-Sakran ibn Amr. He came from the tribe of Bani Amr. When the Muslims were experiencing waves of persecution in Mecca, a lot of them migrated to Habasha, to Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia. There were two waves of migration from Mecca to Habasha. The first was with Ja'far, the son of Abu Talib, the brother of Imam Ali about 80 or so people went with him. Then there was a second wave of migration from Mecca to Habasha. Sauda, along with her husband, who was also her cousin, they went to Habasha in that second wave of migration. They stayed there for a while and then they came back to Mecca. When the migration ended, they came back to Mecca. When Sauda and her husband came back to Mecca, her husband died. His name was As-Sakran ibn Amr, he died. So now after all these years of struggles and sacrifices and leaving their hometown and spending time literally being exiled from their city and now that she came back she lost her guardian and protector. The Prophet felt responsible to take care of her. Khadija had died too so the Prophet was not married at this point. He did not have a wife and in fact some hadiths narrated by Sunni sources they say that Khawla, the daughter of Hukaym, she was the wife of Uthman ibn Mad'un. You know Uthman ibn Mad'un, he was one of the companions of the Prophet, one of the good companions of the Prophet. His wife, she came to the Prophet She told him, Ya Rasulullah, we see you so sad after Khadija, after she passed away. It's a good idea if you get married. We really encourage you to remarry and we do recommend Soda as well. Soda, she's lost her husband and it's good for you to be married. That will probably reduce the depression that you're going through or the sadness that you have over Khadija. So the Prophet once he saw this decent lady trying to facilitate that, he accepted. And he said, okay, you know, I'll marry her for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we find that the Prophet when he married Sauda, he was not looking for a young beautiful woman, a virgin girl, as it was customary for those elite Arabs to always look after, no. She was a little bit, you know, old, she wasn't very young. 
she was a widow, she had nothing really special to offer him, but the Prophet um, out of his care, four women like that, who were now vulnerable, they lost their husbands and they sacrificed, after the religion of Islam they were persecuted, the Prophet said, okay I'll take her in my care and I will marry her. So the Prophet wanted to show her compassion. So the Prophet marries her and then the migration to Medina happens, the Prophet moves to Medina, a number of sources indicate at this time he was married to Sauda and they went to uh, the city of Medina. Lady Fatima was also with the Prophet So when the Prophet comes to Medina, he secures a house, a room for Sauda. So remember, she's the first wife that he remarries after Lady Khadija and the Prophet is living in that house. There are some sources even indicate that Lady Fatima would for some time be in this house as well. Let's shed some light on the relationship of the Prophet between uh, him and Sauda because there are a lot of hadiths that are disturbing about that. First of all, Sauda, unfortunately, she developed strong ties with Aisha later on when the Prophet married Aisha. So the wives of the Prophet basically were two groups, two camps, two parties. You had the party of Aisha and the party of Umm Salama. Who was with Aisha and her party? Hafsa was with her. Who else? Sauda. Sauda also sided with Aisha. Whereas Umm Salama and a number of other wives, they were from a different party. And the party that would come up with conspiracies, we know which party it is because in Surah Al-Tahrim Allah makes it very clear, those two wives and the tafsir makes it very clear who they were, which side was usually conspiring against the Prophet So Sauda unfortunately she goes under the influence of Aisha and she basically sides with her in certain positions. This is what we understand from some, some of our hadiths. Now there, there are problematic narrations that Sunnis have narrated which we will go, we're going to refute and present our analysis of them and then enter a very very important discussion uh, about a few verses in the Quran. So the hadiths that are narrated in a lot of Sunni sources is that the Prophet marries Sauda in Mecca, then he migrates to Medina and then at this time Sauda is growing older and older. So the Prophet is no longer interested in her because now he's got younger wives, she's getting old, he was no longer interested in her. So one day he signaled to her, let's separate, you know, he gave her the intent that he's going to divorce her. In fact, some Sunni hadiths claim he did actually divorce her. Like, okay, I no longer need you. Go, I divorce you. There are Sunni sources that say he did divorce her, whereas other sources state he threatened to divorce her. So one day as the Prophet was passing by in the street, she sat on the street literally crying and begging him. She told him, Ya Rasulullah, did I hurt you? Did I violate you? Did I do something wrong? That you want to punish me? He said, no, not really. She told him, why did you divorce me? I'm not interested in marrying any other man and I want to be your wife. On the day of judgment, I want Allah to resurrect me as a wife of the Prophet. Why did you take that honor from me? 
the Prophet feels bad for her according to these hadiths. He says, okay, they were still in the Raja period. You know, when a man divorces his wife, there's a three month or three period cycles that they have to wait. She was in that. So the Prophet says, okay, come back. But she made a deal with the Prophet to encourage him to accept her back. In Islamic law, if a man is married to a permanent wife and he has multiple wives, he has to give each wife one night. So let's say a man has four wives. They are entitled by Islamic, by the Islamic law of equality to have one night with this person, with, 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 with their husband. So it would be haram for this husband to spend two, three nights with one of his favorite wives and then skip uh, some nights with another wife. This is haram. Unless she willingly says, you don't have to come. You know, she's, all, she's fed up with him too. Get out of here. <laughs> but she's entitled to that one night according to Islamic law. Okay. Sauda, being the wife of the Prophet, she was entitled to a night. So when the Prophet supposedly divorced her or he threatened to divorce her, she made a deal with him. She told him, look, if you take me back as your wife, I will give my night to Aisha. So she gets two nights and I give up my night. I don't expect you to be intimate with me anymore or even come and spend time with me. The Prophet accepted this deal and he married her back basically. Like I said, these are hadiths that we're going to refute. They're troublesome hadiths. And the claim is when this happened, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verse 128 of Surah An-Nisa. Basically, those proponents of this idea and how they've applied this verse to this situation, the verse is stating, and if a woman is concerned that her husband is now repelled by her or he's turning away from her, but she's willing to make a deal with him that look, I'll stay in this marriage, let's not go to divorce, but I will relinquish some of my rights, right? And you can continue not spending time with me, but at least let's stay married. The Quran says, there is no harm in them going back to one another and staying married, that's fine. If that's a deal that they reach, they willingly reach this deal, that's fine. We don't have a problem with that. They can do that. This is the linguistic meaning of the verse. So some claim that this verse was revealed telling the Prophet, yes, you didn't really want her anymore, but now that she's asking you and she's relinquishing some of her rights, it's okay, you can go back to her, you can stay in that marriage as long as she's okay with it. So that's the meaning of the verse and that's how they have uh, applied it. So Bukhari and other sources are very clear that she gave up her night to Aisha, because Aisha was the favorite wife of the Prophet and in fact a lot of these hadiths are narrated by Aisha herself. She claims that Sauda gave up her night in her favor because she was the favorite of the Prophet's wives. Let's stop at this point here. The Prophet the Quran describes him, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ 
you have the best moral standards and akhlaq. The reason why the Prophet married her in Mecca was why? He could have married another younger, more beautiful girl. Why did he marry her? She lost her husband. The Prophet wanted to take her in her care. Is it at all reasonable based on your understanding of the personality of the Prophet that now when he came to Medina, he married a younger wife or had other wives and so does getting old, the Prophet wants to divorce her. like, okay, you know, I no longer need you. Do we ever see a similar practice by the Prophet Never in his lifetime do we see that. The whole reason why he married her in Mecca is because he wanted to take her in her care. Now that she's older and she's weaker, he's going to throw her out in the street and divorce her? What, what does your understanding of the Prophet's akhlaq tell you? That's not something a decent man would do, let alone the Messenger of Allah. If someone does this in the community, how would you view this person? Be honest. You'd lose respect for this person, right? It's like this, this woman, this widow that, that you married out of your compassion, now that you married someone else who is younger, you're going to tell her, okay, you know, I'll divorce you. Not because she did anything specifically wrong, just because you're no longer interested in her. A decent man does not do that. Let alone a messenger of God who's an example, who's an example for others. So right off the bat, we know these hadiths are fabricated. And uh, if we want to analyze why they were fabricated, the, the, all the pointers point to this uh, you know, idea that Aisha had a tendency, or the group of Aisha, had a tendency to exaggerate her qualities and to show she was such a favorite of the Prophet to the point where the Prophet would go through all that just to show how much he loves Aisha, he accepted soda back so he, she would give up her night for Aisha. It just makes Aisha feel more, feel more special and seem to Muslims as being the special wife of the Prophet. So clearly we see the motives behind fabrications like that. Otherwise the Prophet's akhlaq right off the bat we know he would not do something like that. In fact some of the wives of the Prophet they gave him such a hard time, such a hard time, conspiracies, problems, yet the Prophet did not divorce them. Sauda, a poor woman like Sauda, the Prophet's going to divorce her and then she has to beg him back and make a deal with him, okay I'll give up my night, that's not the akhlaq of the Prophet. So this hadith is not acceptable at all. Any, any thoughts about these hadiths? It is degrading. I remember Orientalists pick up on these hadiths and like, oh, this is, this is the founder of Islam. Very troubling. So we denounce these types of hadiths. Yes, brother. Uh, well, I just wanted to say like, you know, the Prophet came as a mercy, you know, of mankind. Um, character was the highest, you know, morals were the highest. Do those who follow the books of um, al-Bukhari and um, so on, like do they like take each hadith and like um, let's say it's real, like those that go against... The staunch the supporters of Bukhari, yes, will defend Bukhari. So, and sometimes they're blinded by their love for Aisha. If so, there's something in it for Aisha, they'll accept it, unfortunately, without realizing that they're degrading the Prophet. Yeah. We've seen similar examples in our biography class. Remember when we talked about Abbas wa Tawalla and Uthman? 
And sometimes when you tell them, well, what if Uthman is meant by the verse? No, astaghfirullah, how could it be Uthman? Well, you accept it for the Prophet, but you don't accept it for Uthman. You degrade the Prophet so you protect Uthman's image. It's unfortunately it happens. Sometimes the Prophet's dignity is sacrificed because they want to elevate others. That's very, very unfortunate. And one thing I'd like to share here, this is an important point. When you compare between the Ahlul Bayt school of thought and other schools of thought, you never find in our genuine school of thought, ever we degrading the Prophet to elevate one member of the Ahlul Bayt. That's not something we ever do. Whereas when you look at other schools of thought, oftentimes other companions or wives are elevated at the expense of the Prophet's dignity. Keep that in mind. This is a very fundamental point. We never sacrifice the Prophet's dignity. If you have any claim from any, there are some ignorant speakers who say wild things on the pulpit here and there, but if you find anyone trying to make Imam Ali seem more important or Fatima Hussain by lowering the Prophet, Right off the bat, no, this is not the path of Ahlul Bayt. The Ahlul Bayt did everything to elevate the status of the Prophet. Never would they lower the status of the Prophet. This is exactly the argument that they use to support their fallacies. They're like, if you guys raise the status of your 12 Imams above the Prophet, why can't we raise the status of you, Umar, or whoever else it is? Exactly, that, invo- that, that opens the door for such an objection. So what we say is we never raise the status of the Imams at the expense of lowering the status of the Prophet, never. In fact, we always, you know, keep that high status of the Prophet And if there's any hadith that could do that, we reject it right off the bat. We never compromise when it comes to the dignity and the status of Rasulullah We're very clear with that. Whereas with their companions, no. Oftentimes, see, we never have a scenario where there's something troubling in the Quran, like somebody did something inappropriate. We say, no, 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 Imam Ali didn't do it, it was the Prophet. We never, see, show me one example where Shias have done that. But they do that constantly. Things that some other companions did to save their face, they attribute them to the Prophet. We never do that, impossible. No Shia would logically think that, that. he'll accept something the Prophet did inappropriate, but not Imam Ali, no. These are ghulat maybe, they're, they're, they're kafir extremist idolizers uh, that have existed in history. But, but the, the genuine Shias will never accept that. And that's surprising, even in today's society, I mean there is this misconception out there that you know Shias may be idolizing Imam Ali and the rest of the Imams above the Prophet. I'm not, I'm not sure if uh, it's perhaps the method of communication when it comes down to commemorating uh, the death and the birthdays of the different Imams as well as the Prophet because during the course of the year we have birthdays and commemorations and they happen equally in terms of what is being said about the qualities of the Prophet as well as the Correct. Imams. And as a result of that, they confuse that like, well... You You're giving more importance yeah. to Imam Hussein as opposed to the Prophet. Yes, sometimes that misconception um, does arise. There is some some truth to it and unfortunately in some Shia communities there is some sort of neglect towards the Prophet, I'll be very honest with you. You know instead of dedicating more time to study the Prophet's life and knowing more about the Prophet and mentioning him more in their gatherings and learning from his lessons, sometimes we see that sidelined, right? 
And, that, and, that, and that's part of ignorance. It's out of ignorance, unfortunately. So there is some work that the Shias definitely have to do in terms of uh, being more active with the Prophet So part of that criticism is valid. But it doesn't mean that they, high, they hold Imam Hussein in higher regard. Obviously, um, ask any Shia, even those who've been walking two weeks for Arba'een, they know the Prophet, the grandfather of the Imam Hussein has a higher status. They would never lower from that status. But yes, they might admit that we have some shortcomings towards the Prophet in terms of reviving his teachings and his legacy and his biography. Yes, that, that could be the case. But it's natural psychology because you have 12 Imams, so there are 12 birthdays, 12 commemorations. Yeah, that quantity in itself. And remember, the area of persecution as well. That, that is also, there's a historical factor there, right? The, the Shia held on to Imam Hussein because that was their only way to save the tradition of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi So by reviving the message of Imam Hussein, that's an extension of the Prophet. It's an extension of the Prophet. Outsiders sometimes may not see the dynamics of that. 